What is love? I'm sure many people have pondered what love actually is. I think it's a lot of different things. But at its core, I really think it's guidance and care and commitment and a sense of always being there no matter the cost, no matter what may happen. Today on Dr. D's Social Network, my guest is Andrea Woods Wilson. Andrea's story is incredible, just simply incredible. Her journey raising her sister and then loving her through her cancer diagnosis and ultimately her passing is love. Check out this episode with Andrea and you tell me what's love. Network this time with Andrea Wilson Woods. How are you doing today? I'm good, Darian. How are you? I'm doing well. It's nice to be on with you. And uh, I've been waiting for this conversation. Uh, interesting story. And I think uh, stories are what I'm all about and people sharing those stories. So I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So let's Let's share your story. I mean, let's just jump right into it. I mean, I found it very fascinating. I'm sure everybody who listens and go, what are you talking about? Like, what is this story here? Let's just jump into it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'll give a little background of who I am and what I do now, and then I'll share the story of how I mm-hmm. sort of got there. Um, I am the author of the award-winning and best-selling medical memoir, Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. I'm the president and founder of the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer University, which is a social benefit health tech startup. And I have been in the cancer space now about 18 years. I've had six family members die from five different kinds of cancer, lung, liver, breast, uh, bone, and head and neck. But the most significant loss by far um, was my sister. Um, When I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I had graduated from college. And I ended up getting custody of my then eight-year-old sister, Adrienne. And so I raised Adrienne all through my 20s. I was her legal guardian. I was her only parent. We have the same mother, different fathers. Her father actually died in a car accident before she was born. And um, yeah, I mean, it it was really, it wasn't easy, but um, raising her was just probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. And it was just such a gift. And um, a month after her 15th birthday, just as she was finishing her first year of high school, she was very unexpectedly diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. Wow. What was that like? I mean, what was we're in a weird time right now, for sure, with so much going on. But and I've had cancer certainly affect my some family members of mine who passed away. But what was that like for a 15-year-old to get that news? We were stunned. I mean, I came home from work. I was a teacher at the time, and I actually worked from 8 to 3, and she went to high school from 7 to 2. So she always got home before I did. And when I walked in the door, she usually was sitting at the kitchen table doing her homework And because she wasn't allowed to go on the computer (laughs) until the homework was done, I was a very strict parent. You are. You're good. I like that. uh, Oh, I was. And and so, um, but I found her curled up in a fetal position on the floor crying and just clutching her right side where your ribs are saying she couldn't breathe. And I mean, this was a kid who never cried and she volunteered to go see her pediatrician and so um, we, we just got up. We went to go see her pediatrician. Um, we had been there two weeks before because she had hurt her shoulder, and he just assumed we were back because of that. 
But when we told him why we were there and when he saw how distended her stomach was, which she had not shown me, it had been that way for a couple of days, um, but she was incredibly modest. So she never um, let me know. He didn't like what he saw. He sent us to the ER. Um, There's only one hospital in Burbank, California. So we go to that ER. And um, based on what Adrian told them, they thought she might have internal bleeding. Um, She had been to Coachella a few weeks before with my boyfriend, who was a musician. And they had been pressed up against these metal bars. And he had complained of his ribs being bruised. So that's what they thought they were going to find. And that's what they were concerned about. Um, And just to give you an idea of her sense of humor, because she was so funny and so witty, um, as she was being wheeled in for her CAT scan, her first CAT scan in her whole whole life, she said, hey, sissy, watch it be cancer. And that's what she always called me, sissy. And I said, oh, bite your tongue. We're laughing, laughing. And, um, and then they gave her something for the pain and we're just sitting, we're waiting um, at that point, still just the two of us. And uh, the ER doctor comes in and I knew whatever he was about to say, it was, it was so much worse because he wouldn't look at her. And he said, she has tumors in her liver and lungs and we're not equipped to handle the situation. Um, this particular hospital didn't see pediatric patients And they had arranged for an ambulance to Children's Hospital. He apologized and he walked out. And I tell people like, you have no idea how fast your life can change until it does. And it was approximately six hours from the time I came home and saw her curled up in a fetal position until we got that news. And that was day one of my sister's very short um, 147 day cancer journey. Um, I did not go back to work. My sister did not go back to school in person. She completed school at home. Um, and a week later she was doing chemo. I mean, it it happened so fast. You get whiplash and it makes your head spin. (laughs) What were those days like in the beginning, like that first week going through all of that? And as it progressed, um, Well, I didn't know this until many years later, but behind my back, my, my boyfriend, who was a huge part of her life and my friends called me the rock. And that is the person I've become like, like if, if the world ends tomorrow, I'm the person you want around because I just get very practical and calm on the outside. It's, I don't show you what's going on on the inside. Um, I, I knew I knew that it was cancer, um, even though we didn't get the official diagnosis for two more days. But um, I, I just, I just really just focused on, you know, one step at a time. And what do we need to do next? Um, it, it just, it happens so quickly. I mean, you really don't even have time to think. You don't. Yeah. And you knew this. Now you knew this was terminal. There was no opportunity for remission? No, and, and they didn't use the word terminal, but they certainly, we had a horrible pediatric oncologist initially. Um, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, people, you can fire your doctors. I encourage you to do so if right, there's not right, a good, good sense of energy. Um, but what was frustrating for me, knowing what I know now, is that um, they gave her chemotherapy that they knew would not help her at all, like at mm. all. And just to sort of do something. Um, and no one ever used the words palliative care with me. I never heard those words. Um, yeah. No one explained what that was. Um, and I'm convinced all the chemo did was make her worse. And all it did was decimate her immune system. Um, I, there's no evidence that it even gave her an extra week of life at all. Um she should have been in a clinical trial from day one, which would have been difficult. It's not easy to get in a clinical trial when you are not 18 years old, but that should have been discussed. And by the time clinical trials were discussed, I had finally gotten her transferred to UCLA, um, where she was with a doctor who saw her type of cancer every day because she had what they call an adult cancer. She didn't have a pediatric form of liver cancer. And 
by that time it was too late. I mean, her, her immune yeah. system was completely shot and she was so weak and had lost so much weight. And, um, it, it just it didn't make sense at that point. Um, her options were very limited. And so one of the things that I do now with anyone who's in a very advanced stage of cancer is I really encourage them to look at clinical trials and too often they're a last option. Um, when they, they should be like sort of a, a first choice if possible. Why is that the mindset in your opinion that that's always the last option? I think it has a lot to do with that most people are seen in a community cancer setting with a general oncologist and you cannot expect a general oncologist to keep up with all of the clinical studies that are going on at at any given time and all the different cancers. I mean, it's just impossible to ask that person to do that. And so it's not really top of mind for them. And the onus really is on the patient. Um, I, I can't tell you how many survivors I know now who took it upon themselves to find another option for themselves and they found a clinical trial and it ended up saving their lives. And I'm not saying all clinical trials will save someone's life. I'm not even sure a clinical trial would have saved my sister's life. But, um, you know, too too often it's not even mentioned. You know, it's not even discussed. Um, there's also a thing about, and I hate to say this because it's so cynical, but but I know it exists. Doctors don't like to lose patients. Right. And if you refer a patient to a clinical trial, you've lost that patient because now they're going to be treated by the people running the clinical trial. And unfortunately, that's that's just a cold, hard fact. Not all uh, doctors are that way, but a lot sure. of them are. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been <laughs> during that time, right? I mean, just like, you know, you want to trust your doctor and the people helping you that they have your best interest and this person's interest in that. Um, and the firing your doctor thing is interesting. I don't think, why do you think people don't do that? Um, I think it's two things. I think one, it's, it's definitely generational. Um, the generation before the baby boomers, the silent generation, there's no way in a million years, like my grandparents, yeah, there's no right. way they would have fired their doctors. Like it didn't even occur to them. And then I think baby boomers, especially the younger baby boomers, know that you know they were they were part of that whole generation of rebellion the 60s and hippies and so they understand it's okay to question authority but still you know um so many people take that doctor's word is um what's the best sacrosanct i guess is, is yeah. they think it's like that's it that's and, the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's the end, right? And one of my favorite really bad jokes is what do they call the person who graduated last in medical school? Doctor. Doctor. <laughs> I know the Doctor, joke. Doctor, right? And actually, there's there's a great book uh, uh, titled Unaccountable by a doctor who talks about some of the worst people he went to medical school with who mm. should not be practicing physicians, and yet they are. And so not all doctors are created equal. Um, not all care is created equal. And um, it could be a very frustrating experience. And for us, the problem was that we were in a children's hospital, one of the top in the country, no question. Um, but my sister didn't have a pediatric cancer, and they did not really understand her cancer. And it took me six weeks of fighting with the insurance every day, Monday through Friday, six weeks of this to mm. finally get them to agree to transfer her care to UCLA. And it was so frustrating, but we didn't have those six weeks as it turned out. Like we, you know, we didn't have that. And yeah, it, it, was, it was very frustrating. So once you kind of knew that this was, this wasn't going to be the ending, uh, you know, in terms of maybe remission or, on back, what was that like knowing that you knew that her life was going to end? I never let myself think that way, even though I knew it deep, mm. deep down. I just couldn't. I, I had to live in order to be there for her every single day. I had to live in what I would call a very healthy state of denial. I had to. And um, 
you know, when you, when you're the caregiver of a cancer patient, you take on roles that people often don't even see. Um, in my sister's case, you know, I was not only her home nurse, I was a cook, which is really scary because I'm a terrible cook, but oh, I was a cook, okay. you know, um, I was the housekeeper, you know, I ended up being her teacher when she went back to school in the fall at home. Um, I was her chauffeur, you know, I was her secretary. I mean, I, I did everything. And um, in order to be that person and be functioning well for her, I could not let her see for even half a second that I thought she wouldn't make it. Yeah. And I would say I really didn't accept it until um, about the day, day before um, she was home. And I knew that she was, uh, she was in a state um, where she could hear us, but it was really difficult for her to talk at that point that the mm -hmm. tumors in her lungs really multiplied out of control very quickly. And I knew that, that if she wanted to, because she was so stubborn and there were never any tumors in her brain. So she knew what was going on, that she would just hang on for months and months if I let her. And so the, the day before, um, gosh, you're going to get me to cry. The day before I, I told her that, it was okay. And, um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that I was going to be all right, which was a total lie. But I said that. And the next morning, um, she was like a totally different, uh, person. Um, when our hospice nurse came in, she was like, what happened between the, you know, last night and this morning. And cause her blood pressure had dropped. It was almost normal. Her breathing was less labored. Like she just seemed very, very calm. Um, and she, she died that evening. Yeah. No, I, I can identify with this. I mean, I was there when my mother-in-law passed away on Christmas two years, no, three years ago. And I remember saying those things, same things. It's okay to let go, you know, yeah. and happens pretty quickly after the, that time. And, um, I just remember how powerful that moment was. Um, and unless you have an, and it was from cancer. You know, and I remember thinking this is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my life watching this happen <laughs> yeah. and the gravity of it. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, my mother-in-law was in her 60s and I felt she was well, way too young to be dying from this. But a 15, 16 year, 15 year old, yeah. what was going through your mind once it happened? You mean after she died or just the Yeah, right time? after she died. Right after. Well, I don't want to ruin it for people because it's in my book, but we had this oh, really okay. we had this really miraculous experience right after she okay. died in, in her room. And um and all I can tell you is that souls exist. I know they do because I saw it firsthand. Um Did you not believe that before? I wasn't sure. I would say I was agnostic before. I, really? I I wasn't really sure. Wow. You had an yeah. experience. It changed your mind. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really did. And and I wasn't the only person who saw it happen. And so it wasn't like something in my head. Um, yeah. and, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, it was, it was really, it was really beautiful. Um, we'll save that for the book clearly, yeah. but, um, it's amazing though, that, I was just in a conversation with, you know, I was recording another podcast before yours with awesome guy. And we were talking about how things really change you once they become real in your life or close to you. And that sounds like what happened for you. Yeah, I am definitely much more spiritual now than I used to be. Um, I mean, I grew up sort of Southern Baptist, mm -hmm. <laughs> thanks to my grandmother, but my parents yeah. were not, both of them had grown up in religious homes and they were mm -hmm. very sort of anti-religion, but not atheists necessarily. Um, but they didn't really participate in church. And, um, but I, I went to church with my grandmother for a period of time. And so I kind of grew up around that and I would never say I was never an atheist, but I was very agnostic for a long time. Mm -hmm. But but Adrian was always um, on on her tombstone. It says "Young Spirit, Old Soul," and that captures her perfectly because 
she was doing yoga before yoga was cool. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. She loved to study different religions. Um, I mean, it's really funny. I posted Beautiful. something on LinkedIn last week. Halloween was her favorite holiday. Her second favorite holiday was Passover. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Highly irregular for a child, basically. Yes, and we're not Jewish, okay? I need to preface yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> not- a 15-year-old she- child. <laughs> yeah, she loved Passover. I mean, she loved, she was incredibly spiritual and um, and really just interested in, in, in everything that different religions had to offer. And um, yeah, so she she made sure that I knew that she was still there. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm getting chills thinking <laughs> about this. I mean, I, I have always been uh, spiritual, religious. I grew up in a family um, that believed in God. And, you know, I hadn't seen really anybody pass away in person until actually my mother-in-law, but it just confirms it. I don't know. I don't, it's hard to not feel that if you've really been around that. I mean, I've had many other experiences and different things uh, that have confirmed it for me, but I wonder how that has manifested itself after that experience in your life spiritually. Well, I pray to her every night. I say prayer to Adrian every night. Beautiful. And I, and I have for, for the last, uh, it's, it'll, be, it'll be 19 years here in a couple of weeks. 19 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She died. Like I said, I raised her all through my 20s. She died um, a two months after my 29th birthday. Um, yeah. Yeah. What so was the best the part about raising her? Oh, gosh. That's a great question. I don't think anyone ever asked that. Um, our bond. I mean, we were just so close, even when we were arguing and she was pushing boundaries and driving me crazy and breaking rules. And we were just so close. And someone said one time, and I thought it was kind of funny, that on the surface, we looked very, very different. You know, we physically, we looked different. We acted different. We had different tastes in music and and books and things like that. But um, deep down, we were you know, both highly intelligent, both very stubborn, um, and both really protective of each other. Mm. Um, and we just had this, just this very, um, special bond. Yeah. That sounds like it. It sounds like it's really special. Do you feel in a sense that you were supposed to do this? You were supposed to take care of her? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh Yeah. I, I knew I was going to take care of her. I did not know I would get custody of her quite that young. But um, I mean, when I when my mother and I had moved to Alabama and my mother had realized that she was pregnant, um, by that time, Adrian's father had already died. And, and um, in the car accident, my mother was really surprised. Um, but my mother decided to, to have the baby. She's in her early 40s at this point. So it was already a high-risk pregnancy. And um, my mother ended up having a C-section and I was there. And they let me go in there because my mom was a nurse. And so she had all these contacts and everything. And so I was right there. And I was the first person to hold my sister. And right after she was born. Oh, my born. goodness. And so that bond was there from the get-go. And so I helped raise her all through high school. Um, leaving her to go to college across the country was one of the hardest things I ever did, but I really, I knew I needed to like get out on my own and do my own thing and, and get some distance between me and my mother. Um, but I was very concerned about my mother's ability to, um, take care of my sister. I was very concerned about it because I was the one that sort of took care of the house. <laughs> right, I was yeah. the housewife. <laughs> you seem like you're just this big caretaker, Andrea. Like, And I imagine that, I wonder how that was after she was gone and you had spent all this time taking care of her and devoting your time. What was that like? Oh, it's a huge void. And you have to acknowledge that it's never going to be filled again. Um, and I, I was 29 and I had never had this overwhelming desire to have children of my own or to be 
never, ever, ever wanted to be pregnant. And, mm-hmm. um, and I realized that if I was, if I ever had a child of my own, I'm kind of using air quotes, but a biological child, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that I would always, you know, in my head, compare that child to Adrian and that would not be fair. And I knew that wouldn't be fair and I couldn't do it. And so, um, I, I don't know if this is answering your question, but sort of roundabout it is. I very early on decided to get my tubes tied. Um, so I didn't have children of my own. Uh, I mean, for me, I raised the best kid ever and, um, yeah. and that part of my life was over. So I, I sort of lived my life in reverse. So in my twenties, I, I raised a kid in my thirties, I got married in my forties, I started a business. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so I just did it backwards. That's all. I mean, and you know, I do, when I see people my age, I mean, <laughs> over 45 now, when I see, when I see women my age, who have five-year-olds, I'm like, oh my God, like that. I can't even <laughs> imagine like that. That seems like that. How do you even have the energy? And oh my gosh, I'm just happy. I have yeah. the energy for my business, much less a, a child. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have any regrets about a about that whatsoever. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a huge void. I, I, I would did say you, I spent you know my thirties grieving. Yeah. I, that was going to, that was going to be kind of my next thing is what was that grieving? Like, what was the process for you? Um, I, I, I had a very difficult time and I didn't really know what to do or how to do it. And I spent the first year after Adrian died trying very hard to please people and to assure them that I was going to be okay. And, and I participated in everything, every, you know, I was, I was that person in my group of friends that really brought people together, even if they weren't friends with each other. So I was very much a center and, and this group of people. And that first year I just, went along. I mean, three weeks after my sister died, I look back at this and I'm like, what the hell? And I mean, three weeks after she died, I was at a Halloween party because people, I wanted people to know that I was going to be okay. And, um, after that first year, I just lost it. And I just said, I'm done. Uh, I am done. Like I just, I needed to kind of come apart. And so I could put myself back together. And when that happened, um, I ended up losing all of my friends. Um, what did that look by, like? You said coming apart. What was that? What? How did that manifest? I stopped pretending I was okay. Yeah. I just stopped. I stopped going to social events that I didn't want to go to. Mm-hmm. You know, I allowed myself to cry. I allowed myself to be sad. I allowed other people to see it. And I don't think most people knew how to handle it. And, mm-hmm. um, and I lost my friends. And there's only one friendship that I purposely ended actually many years later, but, um, but most of my friends just sort of gradually drifted away. And mm-hmm. I mean, this was a tight group of people who were all there when Adrian was going through cancer and they all showed up and they were all supportive and they adored her. They treated her like a niece. She loved them. She called them her aunts and uncles. I actually acknowledged them in the book and, and many of them are in the book. All the names have been changed, but they're in the book and, mm-hmm. and they would recognize themselves. But, um, you know, and that was hard too. I, that was really hard to lose all of those people. But What I was just, the losing? Was it like you just, so you weren't attending things, but what was kind of the, the thing that made that change? So like if they're so close, what happened that they just, no communication or what? Yeah. Yeah. Some people just stopped speaking to me. Oh huh. yeah. Never called me back. Just stopped speaking to me. Um, hmm. when I started my nonprofit dedicated to Adrian's very specific type of cancer, which the only reason I did that is because there wasn't another charity in the U S doing anything in that particular cancer. It's, it's not like when I was a little girl, I said, I want to run a charity when I grow up. I mean, that was, yeah. you know, that was not my grand plan. Right. Um, and I lost a lot of people when I started that, because I don't think they really understood what I wanted to do. And a lot of them got involved early on and, um, 
I think they thought this was, it was sort of my way of therapy or something, but it's like, no, I'm starting a real organization here because I don't want people to go through what I did. Um, you know, and I don't think I really changed, but what I wanted in the world changed and what I wanted Mm. to do with my life changed. Um, I don't think my core personality once I got through my grief changed all that much, but, um, but I certainly didn't look at things the same anymore. Yeah. I wonder when you started coming out of that grief, what was the perspective that you started to grow in your life? Well, I, you know, it took a long time. I, um, I definitely, yeah, you know, I don't know. It took a, it took a long time. I mean, for example, I, I got married because I really wanted a normal life. I thought if, because by this time, my friends who were not married had gotten married. If they were married and hadn't had kids, they were having children. Like everybody was moving forward except for me, like everybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I got married to, to a very nice man who's now my ex-husband, but a very nice man who, if I had been in my right mind, I mean, I knew he wasn't right for me, but, um, but I just so desperately wanted a, a quote unquote normal life. And I, when I said this to somebody about a year ago, they said, but you're not normal. Like they said that without skipping a beat. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. Um, and, um, and yeah. And I think other people wanted that for me too. They really just, they wanted, they wanted me to have um, a quote, quote unquote normal life. Um, and I tried and that didn't work out so well. Yeah. And did, did, was there a sense after that didn't work out, like, where am I going with my life? What am I doing? No, the big change for me came when I, um, when I decided to leave Los Angeles. Mm. That was a huge shift for me. So a few years before I had done this amazing yoga teacher training, I was the only non-yoga teacher in the yoga teacher training. And it was really focused more on the spiritual aspects of yoga. And and I just, it was really helpful for me to start really digging into myself and what I wanted. And I'm not from Los Angeles. I didn't have any family in California, neither did my ex-husband. And I loved LA for a very long time. I raised Adrian there, but I got to a point where I just wasn't happy there anymore. And I didn't leave because I was married and my ex-husband worked um, in the entertainment industry. And, you know, but, but I finally made this decision that I had to make a huge change, no matter how scary it was. And the biggest change that I could make that would have sort of um, immediate results, good or bad, was to change my environment. And that's what I decided to do in the fall of 2014. Um, I just decided to leave. And a lot of people got hung up on where I was going and it had nothing to do with where I was going. It had to do with going on that journey. And, um, you know, I have to tell you, I mean, by day two of driving, I was, I mean, I was just so happy. I was so much, I felt like this load had been lifted. And I, and at that point, like there were still so many things that happened and I I didn't know if my marriage was going to work. And, and there were so many other things that happened, but as I drove across the country with me, my cat, my car, (laughs) um, I, I just was like, okay, like this feels like I'm kind of getting back to who I am. You know, I, I, and I just had all this time to think, I mean, when you're driving for over 30 hours, you've got lots of time to think. And, and I felt like I could breathe again. Um, and that was one of the best things I ever did for myself. Did you, or let me rephrase this. How did you feel your sister's presence during all of that time? I really felt Adrian's presence early on. She died at home in her, in um, her room, you know, surrounded by people who loved her. She wasn't hooked up to machines. Um, I wrote the first draft of my book in her room and 
that was very powerful, painful, but also very powerful. Um, and that was actually one of the things that held me back from leaving LA. There were really two things that held me back. One, I was, I was married and I was trying to make my marriage work. And two, I was afraid if I left LA that I was somehow leaving her because she's buried in Los Angeles. And, um, and I still go back every year and, um, you know, coronavirus be damned. I'm going in a couple of weeks, but, yeah. but I, I go every year um, on Halloween since, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was her favorite holiday. And I go and I visit the cemetery. But, um, but I finally realized that, you know, I'm not leaving her. Like she's with me all the time. Exactly. Um, but um, I, I don't dream about her as much as I used to. And I don't sort of feel her presence like I did that first year or two. And so I like to tell myself that wherever she is, whatever plane of existence she's on, I feel like it's sort of time is different. And I feel like, you know, for, for me on earth here, it's been almost 19 years since she died, but maybe where she is, five of our years is a day, you know? So maybe in her mind, she's like, ah, I haven't been been gone a week, you know? (laughs) So, um, so that's what I, what I tell myself is that, you know, she's busy, uh, doing other things. Um, so. You ever seen like, well, sometimes people say, or maybe in a movie it's portrayed like somebody sees like a bird or some sign or yeah. something. You know, I, I'm not, I don't know if you've had that, but do you ever get like those inklings that like there's something like that, some guidance from her or some reminder of her that you experience and it pulls you in, into that feeling? Well, not a bird. <laughs> no birds? Uh, no birds. Um, <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> I know, I know which TV show you're talking about, by the way. Come on, Um, I'm trying to pull some stuff together here. I know, you're so funny. (laughs) Um, Well, well, so butterflies always make me think of her because um, she loved fairies. And when she was diagnosed, she had blue hair. This is where the name of my nonprofit comes from. And Mm -hmm. blue was her favorite color. And when she started losing her hair, she got this blue wig um, to maintain her look, as she liked to call it. And then she bought these blue butterfly wings that summer. And when she wore those butterfly wings and that wig, I mean, we, we called her our blue fairy. She just was so ethereal looking and beautiful. And, um, so butterflies always make me think of her. Um, if, you know, if anything else, I just lean in and trust my intuition more. Um, Adrian always encouraged me to trust my intuition and I resisted it because for the longest time, when I knew something before it was going to happen, um, it was never good news. I mean, never. And, and that's not a good feeling. Um, I knew, for example, from the time Adrian was born, I knew I was going to outlive her. I knew it. I can't tell you why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just assumed that she would be in her fifties and I would be in my seventies. You know, um, I never thought she would be that young, um, when she died. Um, there were, there were other things, you know, like, like that as well about her that were really disturbing for me. And they all came true every single one. Um, but she even gave me a book, uh, <laughs> I remember this paperback she gave me about, you know, you really need to lean into this. And so I do that yeah. now. I really lean into my intuition and, and when I don't, it, it always comes back to bite me. And when I do, it's always worth it, even if it's not quite what I expected. Um, like leaving Los Angeles. Like I knew I just had to leave. I knew I had to leave no matter how scary it was and not a single person supported my decision. And so that took, I feel like that took a lot of not courage, but just like, I had just had to like stay, you know, in my decision and, and, and not, you know, be swayed by other people. And that was really, really important. I mean, the only person who supported me going was my ex-husband to his credit. Wow. Um, because he saw how unhappy I was. Incredible. Um, what when you go back to visit Adrian in her yeah. gravesite? I mean, I know this is personal. I know, but I mean, you don't. Please don't share if you don't want to. But like, 
what do you say to her? Like, what is it? Yeah, I only see this stuff in movies. Like, I've, I've known plenty <laughs> people passed away, but like, I've never actually been back to a gravesite of family member. And what do you do? Well, she had a garden, and uh, it was a really beautiful garden. And and you know, every year I go back, the garden's worse and worse because I haven't been able to get anyone to consistently take care of it. So that's always a little frustrating and sad. But um. You know, I don't talk out loud to her very much, and I don't really feel her there, which in some ways is very comforting. Like, I feel her mm-hmm. with me more than I feel her there. Um, but she's buried in this amazing cemetery that you've probably seen in hundreds of movies and television mm-hmm. shows called Hollywood Forever. And a lot of famous people are buried there. And so it's a really really cool place. Um, I had to call to make sure they were open (laughs) before I booked my flight. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, but they are, um, you know, I go there, I take care of her garden. Um, I don't really walk around too much because I, I know the cemetery, you know, very well. Um, but it, you know, it's just, it's the first thing I do when I get off the plane, it's the first place I go. Um, and it's just, it's just important. Um, I don't want, I don't want her to think that anyone forgot about her. Mm. That's powerful. I mean, I can't imagine that she would think you forgot about her, especially you. I mean, <laughs> it sounds like what everything you did um, for her, I can't imagine that she would ever think that ever. I know. Yeah. I know she wouldn't. But what a beautiful thing that you do every year to do that. I'm just curious, you know, like it's such an incredible story. And, but I also wonder how has your experience with this shaped how you see how the world is currently with coronavirus and all these things going on? Oh, you sure you want to go down this path? (laughs) Yeah, sure. That's what the show is about. Getting going deep. All right, let's go deep. Um, Yeah. I loved your interview with Andy Seth, by the way. Oh, so thank you. Andy's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Um, well, I'm very frustrated because um, we won't know the, um, we won't really know the the full impact of this virus on cancer patients um, for a couple of years, but how many people didn't get diagnosed during this time? You know, how many people had treatments delayed and, and, you know, and, and they have, I mean, actually the American Cancer Society very early on did a, did a study, um, and, and showed that, um, you know, how, how many people might die from their cancer when they didn't need to, because the, they were cut off from their treatment, um, you know, or not diagnosed in time and it spread, um, you know, for me, like I'm out there and. I'm doing whatever I can for cancer patients and caregivers. And so it's really frustrating for me to see, for example, when a cancer patient wants to go see her doctor in person because she might need a scan and and he wants to see her in person because he might need to touch her breast to feel that lump. Um, You know, telehealth is wonderful. And I think that that's been one of the positives that's come out of this coronavirus crisis. But there are times when you have to see your doctor in person and you have to go in and get scans and tests um, and you should be allowed to do so. And, um, and I wrote an article about this. This seems like forever ago now. It was April. Um, and it started from a conversation I had with one of my doctors who said how frustrated he was because he was having to turn patients away because the practice had made a decision not to let people come in unless it was absolutely necessary. And he didn't agree with that decision. Um, you know, it, it, it's that part of it's very difficult. The other part that's difficult um, when I'm working with cancer patients is how even more isolated they feel. Um, because those who are still going through treatment or who recently finished treatment, their immune systems are depressed and they are by far um more at risk, you know, th- than most people. And, um, I mean, they are part of that population that needs to be careful and, you know, but I, I see so much isolation and loneliness. And one of the things, um, I actually did after I kept hearing this over and over was, um, 
patients were not like letting people come to their homes. And I said, well, I said, you know, you guys can control your home environment. That's something you can't control what's outside, but you can control your home. And we had a very particular system set up when people came to visit my sister and, you know, sort of like this, this process she went through, you know, this, this cleaning process when you entered our house and, um, and it worked. And my sister, the entire time she was battling cancer, had one cold one time that went away really quickly, um, which was completely different than most of the experiences of the other um, kids uh, that were di- that were fighting cancer as the same at the same time as she was. Um, so that was something that when I was talking to cancer patients and caregivers, they were like, "Really? Like no no one no one had told them that was something they could do. It never occurred to them." And so I I did a little video. We did a little you know checklist thing. Um, so they could have people come to their homes and just set up their home environment accordingly. Um, and that way they weren't as isolated. And I think we're seeing that across the board though, too, the, the isolation and loneliness. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of validity to that. I was just curious, you know, about um, this life-changing experience you had uh, with Adrian and I wonder how other people like going through something like that, it builds hardiness, it kind of steeliness and the sense of you've gone through something very dramatic and difficult. And for a lot of people, they're facing uh, a, a, this difficult, dramatic time for them. So what would be your advice to people you know, as to struggling through these times um, based off of how you handled your time? Um, two pieces of advice. One, you cannot control other people. So you, you know, you can't control. You got that right. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can't control other people's actions. You can't, you can't, you can, you know, and, and that plays into the second piece of advice. Um, you, you know, really look at what you can control. What can you control? Um, and you kind of have to let go of the rest and it's, it's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I see people getting more upset by things that they have zero control over. And it's usually other people. Right. And, and I always come back with what, well, what makes you think you can control that person's emotions? Like what you can't do anything about that person. You can only control your response to the situation. Um, and I, yeah, I don't think that's easy, um, but, you know, you really you just have to focus, focus on that. You know, what, what can you control? Yeah. So, right. I, I got to tell you, this is already one of my favorite episodes that I've done on here. <laughs> you I'm, I'm say going that on, to everyone. <laughs> you know, everybody feels the same way when I talk to them. <laughs> well, I've done almost 200 of these now, and uh, this is up there for me. It's just... Aww. Yeah, no, it's you though. It's it's you, Andrea. It's your presence, how you speak, your energy, uh, your openness, your vulnerability. I, I have to tell you, that's not always common in these things. And uh, I knew it from the second we got on before I pressed record. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be fun, yet also difficult to hear. And it's my favorite things. I want people to be in- engaging and fun, but also... When it gets down to it, they're going to go there. And uh, you did that. I, I am so grateful to know you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I yeah. really appreciate that. Of course. Sharing this, I I know that you share this story, and it's a very um, important aspect of your existence. And uh, I'm sure it can't be easy all the time doing it, but I appreciate you doing that here. I want you to know that. I really do. Yeah, of course. Oh, and before I forget, let me know. I have a gift for your listeners. Yes. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, Cancer University, as I mentioned earlier, it's our health tech startup. It's actually an online membership platform for cancer patients or caregivers. So if you're listening right now and you're a newly diagnosed cancer patient or caregiver of a newly diagnosed cancer patient, um, we are going to give you a free lifetime membership to Cancer U, and all you have to do, do is go to cancer.university, so no.com, cancer.university, 
and um, you can click on learn more or apply now. And um, we have a promo going at the time of this recording. Um, so if this is a little bit later, it'll just say apply now. But when you get to the application, um, you go all the way to the bottom after you fill it out and it says, I have a coupon code. And the coupon code is Dr. Darian, D-R, then your name, all caps, no spaces. So Dr. Darian is the coupon code for your listeners. Fantastic. Thank you, Andrea, so much. Uh, what wonderful work you're doing. And I am pumped for people to listen to this for sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. You got it. We will be in touch. Okay. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences. And it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.